You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 139 for Monday, the 5th of August, 2019. My guest today is Bill Kokus, a writer of humorous suspense novels who's based in North Carolina. Bill graduated from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill with a journalism degree, and he spent more than two decades writing award-winning ads and commercials, first in Chicago and now back in North Carolina, where he also teaches writing at his alma mater. He's written and released two humorous suspense novels, both involving European travel. Those books are Ring of Fire and Battle Axe. And he has another book, which has yet to see the light of day. That book is called Blarney Rubble. You may recall that Bill recently offered to help me to get the USA language and cultural references correct in my first US-based novel, Now You See Her. And he did a really great job of that. Bill has also released a book of cartoons called The Man from Uncle. When we chatted for the podcast, I began by asking him where his love of writing and creation came from. I was drawing cartoons in kindergarten and first grade, and that was my first love of creation, which was mimicking the heroes I saw in the Sunday paper. Charles Schultz was probably my biggest idol. And through the years, I realized that cartooning involves not only drawing, but writing as well. So that I ended up developing my writing skills as I developed my cartooning skills. And that's what I tried to pursue throughout high school and college. I had a comic strip in the college paper. And the closer I got to graduation, the more I realized that it was probably not a viable career choice because it's it, uh, even in the late 80s when I graduated, <laughs> it was not the easiest thing to go after being a syndicated cartoonist. And I did try and I got several encouraging letters but uh, during college, I switched over to advertising because I equated the talents involved with producing a comic strip to the talents involved with producing uh, TV commercials because you have words, you have visuals, and you have a short attention span. So <laughs> I, it was kind of a natural progression for me to uh, kind of switch over to advertising. And once I did that, I really focused in on the writing. So I became a copywriter which is what they call an advertising writer, and got a job in a big agency in Chicago, and I uh, didn't look back for quite a while, back to fiction. So I just I became a career writer, but doing advertising. And I was very interested to find, when you were editing my book recently, that you're, you've got a journalism degree. You, you come from a journalistic background, too. So yes, a little yes. bit of a diversion there, then, by the sounds of it. Well, I entered college with thinking I was going to become a reporter or even a, a TV anchor because I had uh, enjoyed what I was doing on my high school newspaper. And at the time, there, that was the only outlet for uh, writing, really, regular writing. So once I got into school, I didn't, I didn't even know about advertising as an option, really, un until I discovered it within the journalism school. So they considered that a, uh, a branch of journalism. So there was news writing, there was journalism, and there was, P I mean, there was uh, advertising, and there was public relations. So the, all that was grouped under journalism, and by 
switching to advertising, I still ended up with a journalism degree, but with a concentration in advertising. I always reckon I got a lot of skills from journalism without actually realising it. So I, I reckon I got the skill of, of delivering on deadlines from journalism and also <laughs> writing quite tightly as well, I think I got from journalism. What, what, what do you think you got from it? I think it's actually quite a good training ground to be a writer. I would have to agree and on both those counts as well. Uh, you're right. And, and the more I do it, even now, the, the better I get at it. So it, it, like they say, it is one of those things that you never really master, you only improve upon. And... The more concisely you write, the more concisely you want to write because you see how much you can achieve with uh, the fewest number of words. And that, that just inspires you to keep, to keep trying to condense. Because advert writing is a real, real skill in terms of delivering a very key concept, uh, vi well, visually and, and in words. There's a lot packed into a very small amount of time there. I mean, that really hones your skills, doesn't it? I would I would agree, yeah, and uh, because well, a lot of writers or a lot of uh, advertisements don't approach it the way I do, but I always start out with a strategy. So, and I also teach advertising at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, which is where I graduated from. So I, they called me back, and now I teach a course in copywriting once a year, and I force my students to formulate a strategy before they even begin to write the ad. So. With advertising, it's almost a two-layer process. You have the strategy, which is, what is the message of this ad in plain English? Once you determine that, once you sign off on that, then you go about making it creative and interesting and memorable. So it's almost, you have to say it in, in plain language first before you start dressing it up. You've mentioned um, TV, but do, are you doing radio, TV, the whole lot? You know, are, are you doing um, also uh, magazine and, and newspaper? Are you doing the whole lot? These days, not as much. I have done all of the all of them throughout my career: TV, radio, outdoor, internet. These days, uh, our clients aren't as interested in traditional media like TV and print, and they are. Most of what I do is online, and I've done been doing a lot more online video, which is kind of like a commercial, but it there's no uh, there's no real time constraint. Like you have thirty seconds or sixty seconds with a commercial on online, you can get away with almost anything. But of course, because short attention spans are getting shorter, the shorter the better. So I try to shoot for under a minute, uh, under two at the most. Now, it's really interesting because um, occasionally I have to watch television with adverts. That I, I don't watch any live TV now; it's all online. But sometimes they <laughs> Me too. yeah they squeeze adverts in, and I have to say I resent adverts now, and it, <laughs> and it feels a little bit old-fashioned to me. So I really love retargeting. You know, so when I've been to look at something and I've shown an interest, I get retargeted. But I, I've come to resent adverts now. Is how are you sensing that sort of career that industry is going now? It must be tougher, isn't it? It is. It, it, not only the uh, the platforms and the vehicles are shifting you know, much more online, like I said, and more social. But the messaging, you, you have what – I, what I'm trying to do to combat that is shoot for entertainment value. So not just deliver the message, but deliver it in a way that people don't resent it and, and feel uh, like they've gotten a little bit of entertainment out of the message at the same time. And I always tell my students, don't, I, I don't want you to uh, create something that people will resent having to sit through. They, they treat it as an extension of yourself and your personality and pretend you're at a party and you're having a conversation and you want to engage that person right off the bat. You don't want them to uh, roll their eyes and turn away. So you've got this short amount of time. How are you going to get someone's attention and how are you going to make it worth their while?
And the reason I'm setting you up for this conversation is because, of course, this relates to selling books. This is the difference, I guess, between an author saying, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, and approaching it in a more relatable way. And once I get to that point, I'd like to think <laughs> that my advertising background will come in handy and I can uh, do a lot of these things that I know other writers struggle with, copywriting, the blurb, uh, advertising online, Amazon ads. I haven't really – I haven't uh, dove, dived into that yet, but uh, I'd like to think that I can draw on those skills when the time comes and that, that time is coming soon. Do you listen to Joanna Penn's podcast, Bill? That was my the very first uh, one I discovered, and I, I've been listening to it regularly for maybe six or seven years now. Brilliant. Well, they, they had a guy on this week. I don't know whether you've caught this week's episode at the time of recording this, and uh, this guy is, well, basically doing what you do with Amazon ads for kind of high-paying clients. So um, oh. I have a feeling we might have spotted your next career move uh, because <laughs> we certainly need your services i hate doing things like that it's um it's a bit like blurb writing how it, you must be pretty good at blurb writing are you with those skills um again i haven't done too i've only done my own and i'd like to think that they're good but I've, i'm learning more and i have a whole bunch of notes set aside from all the podcasts i've listened to and all the the books the craft books i've read and the marketing books i've read so i when i when i'm ready to dive into that i'm i'm pretty confident well, let's find out then how you got from writing shorts, adverts, training in journalism to aspiring to write something longer, a, a book for goodness sake. What, what, what made you start <laughs> to think about doing something as crazy as that? Well, I had written short fiction in college. I had taken a, uh, two short story classes and I enjoyed them, but I didn't find it uh, to be a compulsion. I didn't. I wasn't one of those people that uh, just had to sit down and write something. At that point, I was still very immersed in drawing, and that was my obsession at the time. And I had vague thoughts of writing a book, but the problem was I didn't have an idea that I thought could sustain itself over the course of a novel. Uh, and once I started teaching about about 17 years ago now, and I was back on campus, and I was walking around in my 30s uh, amidst all these students in their teens and 20s. An idea started to form, and I finally had an idea that I thought would work well as a novel. So that's really what it was. It was the idea presented itself to me, and I didn't think I could accomplish in any other way. I couldn't draw a comic strip. I couldn't write a short story about it. So it just ended up becoming a novel. And once I got into that process, oh my gosh, I realized how much I enjoyed it and how much I look forward to every new scene, every new chapter. Just the whole process was just so much fun. Of course, that was before <laughs> before I really knew what I was doing and before I tried to get anybody to, to read it. So I had a long way to go in terms of learning structure and pacing and all the all the things that you should know about writing a novel. But it was fun nonetheless. And maybe maybe it was more fun because I didn't know what I was doing. I don't know. And did that one make it to being published in any form? And that one is the one that ended up being called Ring of Fire. Excellent. And that's that's available on Amazon? Yes. But you were telling me beforehand, not not ebook, is that right? I was at a I went to a writing conference a couple months ago at the Selmore Book Show Summit in Chicago. My first writing conference ever. And uh, I talked to a number of authors, well, well-respected, established authors there. I, I shared my background with them and I told them I had a couple books out there that I uh, wasn't 
completely confident in anymore because I've learned so much in the meantime. And they encouraged me to take them down. They said, if, if you're really not proud of them the way you could be, and if they're not, if they're not a good uh, indication of your skill as a writer today, then I would take them down and just let it, let it lie until you have a new series out and then you can improve. Uh, you can go back and re-edit the older ones, much like you're doing right now, Paul, with yours, uh, and relaunch. So that's what I've done. I've kind of pulled them down. Uh, the paperbacks are still available, but they might as well <laughs> be invisible for as many as I sell. But I, I've, hit, I've taken them down until I can go back to them and apply all these things I've learned over the past six or seven years. So what was wrong with them, Ben? I'm, I'm always interested when somebody says, a lot of people say of their first efforts, oh, it was terrible, it needs to stay in a drawer. And I'm always interested to dig into, so, so what was wrong with it? Why, why can't we release that? Why, why aren't you proud of that? Well, I, I, had, um, I found an editor via another podcast, and I talked with her. I had uh, three or four Skype conversations with her after she'd read the book, and we went through it on a uh, developmental level. So it was a developmental edit and she identified a number of structural problems that I was only vaguely aware of. So on a line, on a line for line sentence for sentence basis, I still think it's a good, it's well-written. I enjoy, uh, if I go back and read it now, I would enjoy reading it. However, it doesn't have the, uh, the narrative drive that it needs. So each scene Something may happen, but it doesn't. There's not that shift in value. There's not. Um, you don't go into the scene knowing what somebody wants, and you don't end the scene knowing what they've gotten. I I didn't know any of those rules. I just uh, I kind of wrote it like like a TV show, and you okay. So now you cut to this scene, and here's what happens here. Then you cut to this scene, and here's what happens here. But I didn't really know from scene to scene why I was going there. You know, what was driving. Um, the consequences. So it wasn't, you hear a lot about yes, but, or no, and with, when you end a scene. And I was always ending my scenes with, uh, yes, period. Mm. (laughs) So somebody got what they wanted, end of scene. That's great. You know, I, I was, I was being too nice to my characters and letting them achieve things and, and keeping them happy. And meanwhile, uh, the, the reader wasn't prompted to keep reading because things were keep, things kept getting solved without any loose ends. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. So what you wrote was a series of good scenes that when you put, <laughs> yeah. and when you put those together, there's nothing propelling you forward through the story. Right. Exactly. So uh, that's something else I've learned. And I think I'd like to think that uh, I've, I've, it's almost instinctual now. I've been doing it enough now that I don't have to question myself when I get into a scene. And I know that that, that part of the process will be there, but it's fundamental. What kind of feedback reception did you get to that book when you did release it? I got generally got good reviews. Um, the later reviews that were from people that I knew or people that I knew, people uh, who knew people I knew and had a writing background did happen to mention some things like uh, it could benefit from some tighter editing without getting so specific, but uh, those were people that, like you and I, have a writing background and know how to tender that criticism in the right kind of language. Where the people before, the, the just the plain readers that read it, uh, liked it. They thought it was entertaining, but they 
they said things like, oh, it took me a while to get going, or it felt like it took a while to get into it. And, you know, looking back, I would wholeheartedly agree with them now. And, uh, you know, I'm as guilty as any beginning writer on that count. But it was the, the story idea was received well, the writing itself was received well, but it was it was back to those structural and uh, editing issues. Okay, so you, you wrote that one and published that one, but you, you have actually written other books too. So we, we have a, a follow-up book as well. Um, when you came to that book, what did you feel that you'd learned from the first experience that you took into the second? <laughs> uh, I, I wish I could say I had learned more about craft, but that was still prior to my craft journey. <laughs> mm. So I, I was under the false assumption that because I had been a copywriter for, I don't know, 15 years at that point, and because I went to journalism school and had a journalism degree, that I knew how to write. And I did, you know, I knew how to put a sentence together for sure, but I really uh, hadn't had enough feedback on the first book. And maybe I should back up for a second. By the time I wrote the second book, my first book ha had not been released. So this was prior to self-publishing. Um, this was, I wrote the first book, finished it in 2004, finished the second book in 2006, and I got an agent with my first book and got a number of nice feedback, nice letters from um, editors at publishing houses. I still have a big, big, thick file of these things. Um, and their comment was that it was a little too um, – they couldn't nail down the genre. And the problem that I chose, I chose the genre, which was a hybrid of suspense and humor. <laughs> and I've since realized that there, there aren't a lot of writers out there that do that well. So it's not that it's unheard of, but it's just not, not a common genre. And back then they were saying, well, what shelf would we put this on in the bookstore? And, of course, there was no humorous suspense shelf. So I, I let myself adrift with, with that approach. So by the time I wrote the second book, um, I approached it the same way, and I thought it was, again, a solid book. Mo most people tell me that it's a better book, and maybe I uh, unconsciously learn things along the way and how to write something more concisely. But by the time I finished that book, I was losing enthusiasm uh, in trying to find another agent. And that's right around when self-publishing kind of came into the scene. So I decided to self-publish both of those simultaneously, and I did so in uh, March 2012. So I put them both out there at the same time, not knowing – and they weren't a series. Uh, and, and this was long before the advice of you be, if you put out a book, you better have something to follow it up with in case people want to continue with you as an author. So I did put both out, and even back then, I didn't <laughs> – I wasn't a, a beneficiary of what, the so-called Kindle Gold Rush – um, I didn't get, I didn't make money hand over fist. Uh, admittedly, these were not um, easy. Uh, well, I wouldn't say easy books. They were not. They weren't just you know straight up romances or straight up mysteries or cozies or you know things that were easily identified and easily classified. So there was still a bit of a learning curve for people to understand. Well, what kind of book is this? Then, and this is something I know you're familiar with too. My covers were all wrong. So I had a friend design the covers. They were very well done uh, to my specs. And I think they look – to this day, I think they look professional. They could sit alongside uh, traditionally published books. However, that was before I knew that you need to uh, blend in with the genre. And it was my goal, as a lot of other people 
do to stand out. And <laughs> I don't want to look like every other book in this genre. I want to be unique. I want to be distinctive and therefore confuse <laughs> all the prospective readers because they won't know what they're putting their hands on. They won't know what to make out of it. I think that's a really interesting experience because in your day job, you're writing to market. When you do an advert, you have to write to market else you write, no one's going to sell anything. And, and, and yet that's the lesson you've kind of learned with your writing, I guess, is that you've got to be very sure of genre. You've got to use genre tropes and your cover is part of that. It's, it's matching message to audience in many respects. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've actually, the covers you see on my website are the new covers, which I, which haven't really been out there yet. But I have redesigned the covers already, even though the books aren't out again. But that's uh, and, and they all look consistent. And I think they look they, they do a much better job of telling the reader what kind of genre this is. It's going to be lighthearted. Are you familiar with Christopher Moore? I'm not. No. Uh, he's another. Uh, I guess he, he writes satire and a series of standalones. They're not they're not a series, but he has illustration on his covers and. It's lighthearted, but at the same time, just a little, just a tinge of darkness, so you know that it's not uh, going to be a complete, uh, complete puffery. So that's that's kind of the genre I'm dealing with now, uh, and even when I get into the series of mysteries I'm writing as well. So uh, I'm I'm trying I'm shooting for lighthearted with a bit of an edge, <laughs> whatever whatever genre that is. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> um, interesting. I hadn't realized that you'd been writing for so long and that you predated self-publishing that's really interesting so I, I must ask you then um are your aspirations still leaning towards traditional are you are you an indie author now i am all in on indie uh after i i gave my second book um uh battle axe i gave that a bit of a try with agents and at that point, I was becoming more aware of self-publishing, so I was losing enthusiasm for pursuing the traditional route because I was, uh, thanks largely to uh, Joe Conrath, he had the first high-profile blog out there. I was realizing what I could be sacrificing by going traditional and what there was to be gained by going indie. Of course, it was just self-publishing back then. and in, The term indie hadn't even caught on yet. So after that book, I didn't even attempt I, I, I didn't want to think about getting an agent for my third book, which is the one that I've I've been sitting on because I know it needs improvement. Uh, and and from here on out, unless somebody comes to me with an amazing offer, I am not pursuing traditional in any sense. Oh, there you go. That's very much an indie author. Well done, Bill. <laughs> very very committed. I'm impressed. <laughs> well done. So uh, you've rejected uh, traditional. I am interested to know what self-publishing looks like for you are you a word document guy or do you scrivener what kind of tools do you use to get your books out there i did use word for the first two and this was back you know early 2000s and whenever i first discovered scrivener i started playing around with it and the more i use it the more i liked it and now i'm 100 percent scrivener um i know we, you and i have been working in google docs that's an option when I'm collaborating with someone, but by and large, I stick with Scrivener. And when I'm ready to uh, review my own writing, I will export it to Word and then print it out and review it, uh, review a hard copy like Joanna Penn recommends. So that's what I'm doing right now with my current book. 
Yes, and, and actually, uh, the book that we've just worked on together, I wrote in Scrivener and then I exported so that you could have a look at it in uh, Google Docs. So I oh, actually, okay. Yeah, yeah, I was, write, I was writing in Scrivener all the time and then dumping it into Drive so that you could have a look at it. But uh, I see. Yeah, yeah, no way I'd write. I wrote my first one in Drive and it's actually very good, isn't it? It's, re- it's actually really good. I've got no problems with it. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I prefer Drive to Word, actually. Um, it's less fuss. I would too, and it's easier to jump around. Uh, like you can in Scrivener from chapter to chapter, scene to scene, things like that. Yeah. So if you, if you don't get on with Scrivener, do look at drive, I think in preference to word. I mean, I proactively dislike word. I have to say. <laughs> it's just, I, I would have to agree. Yeah. It's sort of bloated and overcomplicated. I'm not just really not a big fan of word, unfortunately. And, and now that they've switched to a subscription model, I'm, I'm even less of a fan. Uh, yeah, exactly. You're caught for life <laughs> now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> right. In your um, blurbs, Bill, you, you mentioned um, Euro travel, that kind of aspect of Euro travel in your books. Can you talk me through that? Is, have you been inspired by that? Well, uh, yes. And travel is one of my top passions, up with writing and drawing. And, of course, one can't always travel as often as one would like to for many reasons, budget, time constraints. So what I've been doing with every book of mine is take a location where I've been and where I enjoyed and where I'd like to revisit and make that the setting for a book. So, so far anyway, the places that are uh, the places where my books are set I've been to, and I would just like to spend more time there. So instead of going back there physically, I go back there through the book and I, I try to make the experience such that it brings it to life for the reader as well. So I've always liked uh, traveling vicariously and they always say that a book can transport you places well i want to do that literally and i want to take someone to another location they're all contemporary so it's not historical fiction but it's all and i found a way to make travel integral to the story so i don't just plot people down in a country for just to have them there i, I make that part of the plot that they need to go here for whatever reason and then i'm there and then i can explore that country city wherever. And I, I, for me, that's the long-term strategy. And that's why my brand as Margaret Ryderville is meant to evoke travel and exotic locations and just getting you out of your uh, comfort zone as a reader and taking you places you've never been. Now, it's funny you say that because that's one of my writing aspirations too. And you, you alluded earlier to doing your university course in the late 80s, which means we're both gentlemen of a certain age, I think, Bill, by the way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, put, yes, yes. I'll put that diplomatically. But, I mean, I, it's actually part of my, I say retirement, because I don't want to stop working, but uh, my retirement plan to travel and write and to research the the locations and build them into my books. So it sounds like you're onto a similar game as well. Absolutely. I'm right with you. Yeah. So it's a big, it's a big tip. Now in the States, I was talking to Jerry Evanoff at 20 books this week. And um, I don't know whether it was Jerry or somebody else. You do seem to have some tax differences in the States. Presumably when you travel as part of your writing, can you put that, those expenses into your taxes against your, you know, your, your expenses as part of a writer? Well, I think I can. I haven't done that yet because I really haven't traveled since I've been trying to pursue uh, writing seriously. So all the trips that I'm referencing in my books were taken many years ago, uh, but I have good documentation. I took, I, I journaled, I uh, have photographs, 
And of course, thanks to uh, you know the internet, I can even go back to certain streets and walk around via Google Maps. Uh, but I believe, from what I've heard, that you can't. If I were to take a trip right now and then base a book on it, uh, there are certain aspects of that trip I could write off as uh, professional expenses. Yes, it's a great old lark. This planning for retirement, isn't it? It's uh, we've <laughs> we've got a long term strategy here, everybody. <laughs> Listen and learn. <laughs> we might be getting older, but we're not stupid, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> now, don't take this as financial advice no no don't no, no it's not financial <laughs> advice at all right yeah, absolutely <laughs> so it's great because you could do that in the u.s and again we, we can't you can't claim all of it you know you can't claim all the parties on the beach and things uh obviously <laughs> right, uh, right but you know certain travel expenses and things that are directly connected with the books i think you know generally but let an accountant advise you that's the main thing i would say just be aware right. of it if, you, if you're new to this just be aware of it that you can offset some of these things against tax that's probably the yeah, general yeah. way you know just keep record keep good records keep good receipts and then you'll find out what you're able to write off and then you'll be, you'll be able to uh, substantiate it and i'd like to think that one day i'll run out of places i've already been to and i i will need to go take a trip to research a location and then base a book there so i i hope to uh, exploit that before long well in the uk i went to a writers conference in manchester in the uk and they had some accountants there who uh, this is uk obviously and they specialize in authors and the the chap who was doing the talk said that they'd work with an author who had not turned a profit in 20 years and he'd been (laughs) he'd been investigated on and he used he used obviously the writing for travel and he'd been investigated by the, the tax people here, the HMRC in our country. And it had been absolutely fine because they'd said he had an intention to make money, to make a profit. He was selling and writing something. And so, huh. therefore, it was fine. I thought, well, that's good enough for me. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a plan if ever I heard one. So, um, again, you've got to always check with an accountant first. But, um, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's a good little, I think it's a good little strategy, I think. Well, I'll start keeping records uh, from this day forward. <laughs> Save those receipts, Bill. Save yes, those receipts. exactly. Now, you're doing some teaching too. Um, t- tell me about the teaching and, and how you, you know, how you sort of impart your knowledge to the, the students. What are, what are you teaching them? Well, I'm teaching writing, but it's actually copywriting, so it's for advertising. But I'd like to think that since I've taken up fiction writing, novel writing, that I've become a better advertising writer as well, because I'm much more conscious of language. And it's probably to the detriment of my students, because I'm becoming more critical of their work as well. And I'm I'm, uh, holding them to higher standards. And they think that as long as they put the effort in, I should acknowledge that. And I do, but I want to see improvement. I want to see uh, then take this seriously. And no, you know, <laughs> you can't expect all the students to take it as seriously as you take it. But I try to to get get that passion across because when I I can, I still get excited about ads that if they're well done and if it's something I wish I would done I had done I I show it to them and I I get excited about it and to me that shows that I I a I chose the right career that I can still get excited about good ads at my age um, but it's also that it's possible to still create ads that excite people and not just people who are in the career in the industry but just people in general so and the fact that these kids are you know 19 20 years old it keeps me in touch with the younger mindset and what what appeals to them where they spend their time uh what concepts uh work for them and what concepts don't because you know after a while 
my references <laughs> uh, aren't going to play with them the way they play with my generation. And it's discouraging, but at the same time, I can keep my references fresh because I'm spending my time with these people. And I have kids that age as well, so uh, that helps. that helps too. But I do – I bring – the aspect of storytelling to the class and tell them what you have a strategy, you have a little story to tell, you want the reader, the viewer to uh, be glad that they spent some time with your ad, with your writing. So take it personally, take, make, you know, treat it as if your face is going to appear at the bottom of the ad with a little box that says, I wrote this. Uh, Because if you distance yourself from it and you disavow yourself of the reactions and the consequences, then you won't be invested in the product. I guess you'll be teaching a lot of millennials now. I'm just thinking uh, the age of my kids. I think I think my kids are millennials. Yeah, so so you'll be teaching millennials. And, and, and interestingly, they're the, all the ones with ad block on, aren't they, when they go on the internet? They're the, <laughs> uh, which is ironic that they're all coming to learn how to make ads. So what's their attitude to ads? <laughs> well, like I said earlier, they, they, they do resent – well, you and I resent ads too if we're watching live TV, for example. But I, I figured out – or I'd like to think that the reason I resent ads and the reason other people do too is because they are an intrusion and they do feel like you're stopping something that you're enjoying to be subjected to something that you don't enjoy. And therefore, if you can make the experience of the ad enjoyable, there's less resentment. Now, in some cases, that means it can't look like an ad at all and it can't even – take the form of an ad. So that's where you get into things like guerrilla marketing and viral marketing, where things are, they are ads, but they're not first and foremost. They're entertainment with an ad tucked in there somewhere. It's really interesting that you say that because I should qualify my distaste for the ads that interrupt programs when I have to watch them. And that is that they feel quite old fashioned. And it's things like, washing powder and things like that you know where somebody's shaking a box of washing powder at you and saying buy mm, this washing powder right. buy this washing powder. right it, it feels very old-fashioned that form of advertising there and but i never turned my nose up at one of these you know these brilliant entertaining funny engaging or sad ads i never turn my nose up at those because they're just part of the tv experience in many respects so so i yeah. guess that's made you up up your game as advertisers to a certain extent you're you're competing with netflix now Exactly. Yeah, you're. Comp- I like. I tell my students we're competing with the world. The whole world <laughs> is competing for people's attention at any given moment, and it's your job to break through all that and be be as entertaining or more so to get their attention. Um, and the, the the ads that leverage emotion are the ones that you just referred to. I you know I routinely show my students ads from the UK and from Europe. As sometimes without any dialogue, that just tell great stories. And I believe there's a, a grocery chain in the UK that does a, a, a Christmas ad every year. I was just going to mention uh, that to you, and it's called. Um, I should know this. It's John something or other. John Lewis. It's John Lewis. Yes, yeah. yes. Every year, every year, I show my students their Christmas ad because it's just so rewarding. And you know you don't have the chance to do things like that all the time because there's not much of a message there other than let's feel good about John Lewis. You know, <laughs> isn't that a warm and fuzzy spot? So you're not really making a point per se, but uh, those opportunities are still out there. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because I always look when people are struggling with marketing and things. I, you can usually find a precedent for something that worked, and it's really interesting. I, I wasn't sure whether you know about John Lewis, but the John Lewis ads people actually anticipate and wait for those adverts. So there is precedent to say that adverts work, even though we all moan about them and say we don't like them. I think what we probably mean is we don't like old-fashioned bad adverts, and we do love mm-hmm. innovative, creative, engaging adverts. There you go. Yeah, that's a good way to reframe it for the 21st century. So there's your challenge, Bill. That's all you've got to do. Just keep knocking those out every week. You'll be fine. <laughs> it's easier said than done, isn't it? It is. <laughs> now, I do want to ask you about the Sell More Books conference because we, we make or I make a big thing of the 20 books conference and I haven't actually spoken to anybody like you who's been to the Selmore Books uh, conference and I know it's quite a big conference there's a lot of people there and it's gathering pace and there's going to be another one next year so um, presumably you went because it was more local to you but um, what's that conference like is it was it well worth attending would it make you go again I would and I am I've already uh, I'm already on the list for next year and it's in Nashville next year. And actually it's, it's, uh, the career author summit is what they've renamed it because a couple different people have taken it over, but they had one last year and I thought about it and I thought I wasn't quite at the point in my writing that I was ready to absorb all that. I, I, I still needed to get some writing under my belt, uh, you know, the, towards this new goal of having a series out there. But this time, the timing seemed just right. I was almost done with one book. It was in Chicago, where I had lived for 10 years after college. So, And I hadn't been back to Chicago in quite a while myself. So my wife went. It was almost like a, a, a mini vacation at the same time. So we got to go back, and we stayed in our old neighborhood. And the conference was set in the same area as well. So all, all these things kind of factored in. And I'd been listening to that podcast since it started, since its inception, so I felt like I knew these guys really well, Brian Cohen and Jim Kukrell, and a lot of their guests were going to be there, a lot of fellow authors. Uh, so I did get to meet a lot of um, people in the industry, well-known names to you and I, not to the general public, but uh, to me it was like meeting celebrities. <laughs> the me, the founder of Reedsy, the founder of Publish Drive, things like that, you know. Uh, and I did, they, they had a really good balance of craft and marketing and I still have a lot to learn in both areas. So I, I took a lot of good notes and just as a networking opportunity, I would highly recommend it, uh, next year as well. And next year, Joe Penn will be there. Yeah. I usually come back from things like that. When, when you go to a good one, like that's, that sounds like a good one, um, enthused and it's great to be among people who are doing what you're doing and trying to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Did it put some wind under your wings going as well? Absolutely. Yes. And I remembered I had heard you say the same thing about 20 books and how you felt that you had finally found your tribe, that you, all these people around you had the same mindset and you didn't feel like uh, the odd man out for doing what you want to do because everybody there was wanting the same thing. And I, that's how I felt. I felt, and that's what it, as an introvert, it was, uh, it was much easier for me to approach people knowing that we already had that in common. So I could just walk up to people and it wasn't like a, a complete stranger because we did have that, this foundation that brought us to this conference to begin with. So uh, I felt very comfortable doing that and talking to people. And the only thing you know, I did walk away intimidated because there were so many people there that had made such progress, but at the same time uh, fired up and re- realizing that look at all these people, either that they're either doing it or they want to do it and they're not going to be dissuaded and i want to be one of those 
Yeah, it's interesting that you said there about intimidated. I'm, I am literally just back from 20 books in Edinburgh at the time we're recording this. And one of the things I, I perceive that too, some people are just doing so amazingly. And then sometimes I feel like I'm having to put so much work in to get anywhere. I do sometimes I'm balanced on despair and inspiration with it, you know, <laughs> despair at my performance and inspiration that these are just normal people. They're just drinking a cup of tea and eating biscuits next to me. There's nothing. They're not superheroes, and, and they've done it. So I, I, I get that. That you know, it, doesn't it feel frustrating when you're you're trying to get there and you just can't quite get it? It does. It does. But then you, like you said, you look at the person next to you on to your right, to your left. They've put out six books. He's put out eight books. And you know, well, what, what's why are they different than me? And the only difference is they either got uh, you know an earlier start, or they're just doing more of it on a daily basis. So, uh, if I want to be there, I've got to do the same thing. So, where where has that left you? Then you you went to that conference, and you were given the advice to take your books down, re- rework them, or, or come up with something new. Where do we find you at this moment in time with your writing? So I've tried to establish a calendar. It's nothing like yours. And in fact, working with you has inspired me even more, seeing how productive and, and uh, dedicated you are with your schedule. Uh, I, I can't quite get to that point because I still have my, you know, my full time. Uh, I own an ad agency. It's a very small agency, but I'm, a, you know, I own a business. I'm uh, responsible for my clients. But I do see that without regular progress that you can measure, it's just forever going to be on the horizon and I need to be more committed to either a word count or uh, some system that will enable me to uh, achieve these milestones. And I, if I want three books by next spring and I've only got one right now, well, you do the math. (laughs) I need to be writing on a regular basis and even down to, you know, so many words per day or, um, something along those lines so I can feel like I'm actually making progress. And it, 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 it can be so overwhelming because you look at it, look at the big picture and, you know, I have this list of, of this to-do list and all kinds of things, marketing and website items. And you can let that overwhelm you and say, I don't know where to start. Or you can just say, well, until I get this writing done, none of that, none of that matters anyway. So that's where I'm focusing right now. And I've, I got a big cork board for my office. I got a whiteboard, um, I got a bunch of index cards, so I'm getting all the tools and that's probably, <laughs> I'm procrastinating in a way by doing that. Uh, but I am gearing up to be able to, uh, do that on a daily, if not weekly basis. And you're going for the three, are you the three books? I'm going to launch with three and I don't know. I know you've had a plan. I want to hear how your plan goes in the fall. If the 28-day release is uh, in between books is the is where to be, or but something like that. So yeah, I don't. I, I'm going to sit on all three until they're all finished and uh, polished, and then re- release them. Um, well, I, I don't know yet how far apart, but start with one and then get the other two out there, and then start working on the fourth. Well, what I would recommend if you've got the time to read it is Craig Martell's book on rapid release, um, because what he does is he's tried all the options. And he goes okay. through them. He goes through the pros and cons of, of each option. Um, and and I think my feeling was because you know I was going to do mine once every week for ages. It, he made me reconsider the ones at the tail end of my cycle, thinking, well, I ought to try twenty eight days because I thought he came 
somebody may disagree, but I thought he was very strong on 28 days. That was my feeling on, on reading the book. Um, that, that's what I've heard. I haven't read the book, and that's, I've heard that as the general consensus these days, too. Of course, it may change by next spring. Who knows? Well, this is it. The whole point of an algorithm is that it, it changes, isn't it? It's, uh, it evolves, <laughs> and Amazon does whatever it has to do to make uh, more money. So, I, I, And again, having just, uh, you know, at the time of recording this, literally just come back from Edinburgh, 28 days, uh, they were talking about all the different cycles, but 28 days seems to be that sweet spot between doing a human amount of writing or a reasonably human amount of writing. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and because I, as you'd have heard in my diaries, I think if you write too much, too, too consistently, I think you can burn out easily. So 28 days feels about right to me, but that's full time. You're doing a full time job, of course, as well as squeezing this in, I think. Yeah. And even with a full time job, if I can pull this off next spring, I would plan to stick to maybe three books a year. I think that's about all I could handle. But by then, I'll have a system down, and I've kind of mapped it out where that gives me a month to outline, two months to write, a month to edit, and then I'm on to the next book. So that may be crazy fast for me. I don't know yet, but that's that's the schedule that I want to get myself on by next year. And then who knows? Maybe one day it's I can sustain myself as a full-time writer. That's the goal. This is the crazy thing, though. You're, you're talking about three books a year as if that's not very much. But <laughs> I know it's great, but this is crazy. It does set up <laughs> expectations because one book a year or one book every two years was fine for traditional authors for a long time. So, you know, three books a year is a, is a good amount to be writing, I would say. Uh, oh, yeah. And not to uh, take a too big of a detour, but you're a music fan, so I know you can relate to this. Back in the uh, 60s and 70s, artists would put out multiple albums per year. It wasn't uncommon for somebody to have two or three albums in the same. The Beatles had three albums one year, of all people. And that has dramatically slowed down for publishing and for music. Now, you, you know, there's big artists that will put out, uh, put out an album every five years, and nobody thinks twice about it. Of course, by the time it comes out, there's all this built-up anticipation for it. But, yeah, that, that pulp model uh, went away for quite a while, and now indie seems to be bringing it back. Yeah, and, and yes, and you've just alluded to Pulp Fiction, of course, which was also that ra rapid release, wasn't it? It was rapid release of its day, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So everything's been done before. There's nothing new uh, <laughs> in life. <laughs> now, I must talk to you, Bill. I, I just must mention your cartooning because I, I just want to come back to this because I think you also released a book of your cartoons, didn't you? The Man from Uncle. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's a... That was probably the first. That was my first book. Let's let's look at it that way because it was just a compilation of the comic strips I had done in college. So when I graduated, the, the technology wasn't available for me to really economically put out a a print collection of my comic strips because this was pre pre internet and and almost pre computer technology with scanners and everything. But about ten years later, everything had caught up to the point where I could do that. And I, for a, I did a 10th anniversary <laughs> edition of uh, when I graduated and I put a compilation together of my comic strips and I threw in some uh, strips that I had done after graduation to try to become syndicated. So there were a, a few in there that just showed what I'd done after graduation. And uh, it's a great memento. And it, it really, the, the audience for it would be people who went to school with me <laughs> uh, because a lot of the stuff is very topical and timely and they would understand it. Uh, but it's just, it's kind of a time capsule of my college experience as reflected through these characters. 
But you see, that I think that's a lovely thing to do. And that is another side of self-publishing that is always overlooked in that we talk about rapid release and getting the books out and making money. But in actual fact, you could also do works of love like this, which pull together uh, your work. And it, it sounds to me very much like you aspired to have a career in cartooning. And you've got this lovely professional record of the work you've done and actually who, who cares if it doesn't sell a million copies it nurtures you it uh, nourishes you yeah i i'm still proud of it and i still every once in a while i'll pick one up and flip through it and you know the memories will come flooding back and i've shared it with uh people that i went to school with and they like it and i've shared it with my family and you know unless you have that connection to that school at that time it's not going to mean the same thing but it is it, it's 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 uh, substantial. It's something that I produced and it, it, nobody can ever take that away from me. So I, I really uh, look back on that fondly. So looking ahead then, you, you've got involved with the, I, I keep calling it the Selmore Book Summit. I can't remember the, the fancy new title for it. What was the new title you said? Oh, um, Career Author Summit. It's Jay Thorne, uh, Zach Bohannon and Jim Kukrell will be running the show next year in Nashville. Wasn't um, wasn't Jim funny on, on the stage shows? I, <laughs> I really, I just thought you don't you don't get a sense of that on the podcast. But wow, he made me no, laugh. No, you're right. He really loosened up on uh, at the show. Wasn't he? Hilarious? I don't think they drink on the podcast. No, I think he needs to have a drink before. He, I mean, he was so funny. I thought it was a brilliant episode that one. But he was doing yeah. it live and an absolute natural in front of an audience. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, very entertaining. That. Um, yeah, so a career author. Uh, and is that your sort of stated intent now? You want to become a career author? I do. I do. In fact, I did back in, you know, early 2000s when I was writing my first book. I thought, oh, it, you know, I had delusions of grandeur like every first time author. Uh, but I thought, well, I'm really good at this. I could I could make a full time living at this. And here it is, you know, 15, 18 years later. But I haven't given up. I, ha I still and now I, the, the dream is just kind of uh, mutated into independent publishing. But I, I still envision that lifestyle, I, and I know it's going to be a lot of work. So I don't have <laughs> the same delusions I used to have about having a big roll-top desk and you know working for three hours a day and then going out on the veranda to smoke a cigar. I know it's going to be a lot of work. But everything I've done so far in independent publishing has been fun and uh, energizing. There's There's been frustration. There's been, you know, will I ever crack this code? But... I keep coming back to it and I keep looking forward to it. So I, I know that, uh, not that determination is everything, but I, that's one thing that uh, will not abandon me. So I'm going to continue at this until I, I, there's some degree of success there. That was Bill Kokos, writer of humorous suspense novels. And you can find Bill's website at margariterville.com. I'll put the links to that on this week's show notes. Coming up on Saturday, another Paul's Podcast Diary. That'll be with you on Saturday, the 10th of August, and that's episode 165. And coming up in that special episode, I'll have 15 things that I changed my mind about in self-publishing. Until then, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you on Saturday. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week. <laughs>